which you mean library time? Obviously. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in, and welcome to the latest episode of Shout for Libraries. I'm Julia. And I'm Michelle. Each month we bring you an episode on an exciting library topic. Today we're looking into libraries in times of crisis. So there's a popular idea out there that because libraries are committed to being a safe space for everyone to be able to access information, no matter what their political beliefs, that libraries are neutral. But that is not true. Libraries are not neutral, and they never have been. Many even argue that libraries have a social responsibility not to even attempt to be neutral at all, but instead to be very politically active and vocal. Now, don't get me wrong, I totally get the appeal of neutral. Neutral means you don't have to do anything, and I love not doing stuff, but libraries just aren't neutral. They are called to respond, and they should. This episode is part one of a two-part series about how libraries respond. Respond to crisis, respond to hate, respond to disasters. I should say it's not going to be just about how libraries respond, but how librarians and other information experts respond, because sometimes librarians exist outside of libraries. It's weird, but I swear it's a thing. So here's an example. Following the 2016 American election, there were initiatives by librarians across the United States, such as the Data Refuge Project, that endeavored to archive climate change data from agencies such as the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the Environment Protection Agency in order to maintain public access to these resources. This was done so that in the event that accessing climate change data is intentionally made more difficult by the Trump administration, that this information was archived and could still be found. The Hathi Trust Digital Library is another initiative committed to making sure that important government documents and research remain available to the public. Boom! Some vigilante librarian and archivist work right there. Uh, information professionals have also been trying many different tactics to respond to the fake news, post-truth, full-blown crisis of misinformation that we have found ourselves in. Librarians have extensive research skills and training, and because of this they can be, as Thomas Froelich puts it, an authority about authorities, and can assist people in deciphering facts from fiction in the media. Media literacy and information literacy efforts popped up at libraries all over the place following the election of Donald Trump. One cool example I came across is the American Public Sphere, which is an initiative that strives to both provide a platform for librarians to fact check on behalf of users and to encourage civilized conversations in communities around controversial topics between people of opposing views. Love that. Check your hate check your facts, check out some books. They even have free food at those things I hear, so boom, libraries. So that's just one example of libraries responding to the misinformation crisis. There are loads. Another example I like is Hacking the Research Library, which is an escape room created by California State University Fresno, where first-year students at the university would enter an escape room type thing and had to determine if what they were looking at was misinformation or actual, reliable, accurate information before escaping. What a cool way to combat misinformation and traumatize first-year students. Also so on trend. Yes, California State University Fresno. So those are examples of librarians responding to information crises, which is obviously our jam as information professionals, but librarians also respond to individual crisis, something that we as librarians are not necessarily trained for. 
Librarians and archivists as well are often helping people under huge emotional stress. People who are struggling with addiction or mental health problems, folks accessing archives to try and find out what happened to their ancestors, people struggling to find work. These are all stressful situations that bring people into public libraries especially and archives looking for help. So although we are talking today about how librarians respond in times of crisis and our focus is more on crises that affect a large group of people, I also wanted to acknowledge that there are countless individual personal crises that public librarians must navigate on an almost daily basis. And that's because libraries are all about serving communities. In this episode, we will be focusing on three examples of the amazing stamina, consideration, compassion, and commitment of a few library workers trying to wrestle with ongoing crises in their communities. Thanks for the explanation, Julia. For our first interview on this subject, Hongyi spoke with Yigana Torbati, who covers immigration for Reuters, about the Haskell Free Library and Opera House. Some Iranian families who have been separated by the U.S. President Trump's travel ban have been using this library, located on the border of Quebec and Maine, for family reunions. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, sure, thank you for having me. So we were talking about your story last year about some Iranian families reunite at Haskell Free Library and Opera House. And we know the Haskell Library is at the border of Canada and the States. So um, first off, uh, can you tell us what you know about the library? How does it operate at this special location? How do people from the two countries enter the library? Sure. Um, so it's a really beautiful um, library and, and building, and it's actually a library and opera house. I think I believe that it was built sort of uh, in the early 1900s um, and purposefully on the border uh, to connect these two pretty small towns um, that, are, that sit on the opposite sides of the U.S.-Canada border. Um, and I think shortly after the library was actually built, um, a law was passing that uh, public buildings accessible to the public can't actually be purposefully built on the border. So it's sort of um, very unique um, in terms of its accessibility and its location. The door, the front door, is on the American side. And so the um, U.S. and Canadian authorities basically have worked out an agreement with the library whereby um, in, visitors who enter from Canada, um, whereas every other point near this library, they would have to go through an official port of entry to cross into the United States. Um, if visitors at this library can park on the Canadian side and can walk about 10 to 15 feet onto American soil without getting a, um, a, a visa stamp or without having to show their passports, and um, they can walk into the front door of the library, which is on American soil, and then they, you know, have to leave uh, and go back to where they, they came from. And, you know, there's a lot of surveillance around the library. There's a camera set up outside. There's awesome border patrol uh, uh, car, like, parked right outside. There's um, often uh, RCMP uh, officers who sort of patrol the area or at least have an eye, have an eye on it. Um, and that's sort of how the operation of the library works. So your story with the Reuters is about some families reunite at the library because they can't do so in the States due to President Trump's travel ban. And the travel ban has been effective for a while. So I wonder if you could tell us that during your investigation, did you find out when these types of meetings started and how has the situation might have changed since then or since your article was published? Sure. The first um, meetings that I heard of um, 
among Iranians uh, was the was like March 2018, and I of course heard about it several months after that happened. But um, that was uh, I had heard one anecdote of someone knowing of a family that had met at that point. Um, most of the meetings that I did hear about happened sort of in this summer, so June, July, August. Uh, and then, of course, I visited it myself in November, and I saw two reunions happen that day. Um, you know, this library uh, has uh, been at other points uh, sort of a meeting point for people who, for some reason or another, couldn't make it into the United States, whether it's because of some sort of uh, criminal conviction or just some sort of immigration issue that is blocking them from entering the country. And so um, there had been a kind of other reunions, but those were, I think the difference was that those were a little bit more um, one-off. They were uh, not issues that were affecting a broad group of people, um, you know, a whole nationality or, or several different nationalities. They were very particular to the problems that some individuals were having. And so um, to my knowledge, there hasn't been uh, this volume of this many people uh, reuniting there um, until the, the, the travel ban. Of course, I don't have sort of encyclopedic knowledge of everything that happened at the library, but from my interviews with people who uh, know the place and know the area, um, what, what happened uh, last year was really neat. In your story, you also mentioned you talked to um, the library side and um, yeah. some authorities. We know that um, the RCMP and the U.S. Border Patrol have threatened to close the library, and there's actually they, they have this policy that bars such meetings. So um, how can we see this from a legal and international security perspective? So I just wonder, like, what are some of the potential sure. risks to all the parties involved, the families, the library, maybe local residents from the two countries? Sure. Um, it's a really complicated situation, I think, for the library because um, you know, I asked for any policies that um, have been written down regarding uh, how this library is able to operate. You know, is there some sort of written agreement between um, the United States and Canada and the library uh, in terms of allowing people officially to walk in the front entrance? And I wasn't able to get any uh, response to that. I'm, I'm still sort of working on uh, some efforts to confirm this, the, the, that sort of information. But, you know, what, what it looks to me is that this is sort of a um, long-standing um, but kind of an unofficial agreement between the U.S. and Canada and this library that allows it to operate in an extremely unique way. And I think that people close to the library who I spoke to felt that the library was in a very precarious position. And so um, it sort of was facing this situation with, with when all these families started to show up there where... They, I think the library staff were very sympathetic to um, these individuals' plight, um, but I think that library officials um, were concerned. If, if you know, I don't, very few of them would actually talk to me. Only the librarian talked to me briefly, and I don't, I wasn't able to get the uh, library board to to um, sit down for an interview about sort of their approach to this. But my sense is that. Um, you know, it's, they're just in a, in a, in a quite a sensitive position in terms of dealing with Border Patrol and, and CPP and also dealing with the Canadians. So, you know, when I did interview the library, the head librarian, he did tell me that um, there had been threats to shut down the library from both the U.S. and Canadian officials. I will say the Canadian um, uh, RCMP denied um, making such threats, and the U.S. Uh, uh, 
Border Patrol at CBP, Customs and Border Protection, which oversees Border Patrol, they um, did not respond to, they declined to comment um, on that question in particular and, and many others that I had for them. Um, so I think that, you know, if you talk to uh, people in that area, they are not at all concerned about the mm-hmm. idea that um, of Iranians would be trying to sneak into the border and um, stay illegally in the United States uh, through this sort of library role. And I actually called the police um, in the area to ask them if they had any reports of people trying to sneak across the border um, through uh, this library, and, you know, they didn't have any reports like that, um, especially recently. Oh, wow. And so I think, like, it, it's, it's a little bit hard to judge. I did, you know, hear several stories of... Um, border officials, American border officials, putting a lot of pressure on Iranians and trying to block the meetings from happening. Those were documented in my story. Um, One official tried to um, block two sisters from going in, and then when a library staff member allowed them to go in, then, um, you know, sort of spoke very angrily towards that library staff member. Um, And so, so there's definitely a lot of pressure. I did also witness instances in which um, border officials, American border officials, spoke um, to uh, Iranian students who were trying to meet there, and then, you know, allowed them to continue their meetings. I, I witnessed one such such interaction with my own eyes, and and allowed that you know he allowed that person to meet with her family, and it was no issue. So it it is it's hard to judge sort of what the legal circumstance is here. I did ask myself, I asked um, Customs and Border Protection officials if there is any law that these Iranians are violating, if there's any regulation. And they, they didn't point me to anything specific. They pointed me to, um, you know, broad laws that, that, that bar illegal entry. But there's no evidence that these Iranians are trying to illegally enter the United States and stay there at all. Um, so, so, yeah, so that's sort of what I observed on the legal question. So I actually saw some people on Twitter, on social media, saying, they might say, oh, stop it now. If you write about this story, it would just bring more attention yeah. to these people and to the library. Yeah. <laughs> so was there, like, any ethical dilemma to you when you were doing this? Yeah. Like, what are some of the principles you had when you were investigating yeah. and writing the story? Yeah. You know, I, I struggled with, um, I didn't struggle with that issue so much as another one, which was um, I, I, you know, worried about whether, um, by writing um, about specific individual people, if I if I were opening them up to um, any special risk or attention, um, whether it be from official authorities or from you know readers or people who sort of didn't like the idea of these reunions, um, in the end, um, you know their stories were so powerful, and these individuals very much wanted to be the voice of thousands of people in their situation, and so. Um, you know that that was sort of the core of, of what I do as a reporter, and and um, they they very much wanted to um, you know speak about their experiences. And regarding the question that you raised, I did get some criticism before the story was published and after about well you know now you you've basically ruined this for everyone else. I will say um, first of all, well, there's a few answers to that question. First of all, as a reporter, it's very difficult for me to um, predict what the second and third order consequences of my stories are going to be. If, if I were to try to worry about all of those different consequences and what might happen, it would be very difficult to write any story whatsoever. And so I felt like my job as a reporter 
is to observe that something is happening and, and you know, uh, try to document it, especially something that really tells us um, a bit more about how this policy is affecting people every day. Um, and it's also, I think sometimes people confuse the jobs of reporters with the jobs of advocates and um, people who are trying to advocate on behalf of immigrants. And I think it's important to, for me to just remember and to remind people that I'm not an advocate for these reunions. I'm not an advocate for immigrants. I'm someone who's supposed to be um, finding out what's happening in reality in the world and, and depicting that to people. And I think um, that's what I did here. Um, and then finally, <laughs> at the very end, I, I think that, um, you know, according to my own sources, um, uh, who are still sort of uh, uh, visiting the library and, and aware of what's going on there, there actually has been you know, no discernible increase as far as I've been able to tell in law enforcement presence um, at the library. I don't know if there have been any reunions held there since my story. It's, it's obviously been quite cold since uh, late November, um, but I, I haven't seen evidence um, that there's uh, there's been any sort of major change. In fact, what I did hear is that um, the, while the library still has signs inside the facility saying that um, the family visits are not permitted, the sign that they used to have on the outside of the door saying so has been taken down. Um, and so I think that is just an indication that, um, you know, there hasn't been sort of this, this um, backlash that, that some people um, predicted. And finally, I just want to talk about one thing that we as the library students would be interested in. And, um, sure. Yeah, so in your story, you focused on immigration issue, <laughs> obviously, because you cover immigration, right? Right, right. Um, but from the library perspective, there have always been debate on what libraries should do, especially public yeah. libraries. So we've had discussions on if libraries should ban hate groups for using libraries' meeting room, or what mm-hmm. should libraries do with homeless people. So I just wonder, during mm-hmm. your investigation, um, you've talked to the library side without getting much response, but have you talked about like what position should the library take or what's your personal thoughts on this after doing all these investigations? Yeah, it's, you know, it's really, that's a really hard question for me to answer. I think it goes into just so many other issues of free speech and what role a tax-funded, um, publicly-funded institution um, has to play. I will say the Haskell Library itself is a private institution, but it is uh, registered as a as a charity, so it's tax exempt. So it does receive some public support in that form. And I believe, um, you know, I'm not a legal expert, so I may be getting this wrong, but I believe having that status means that um, they can't discriminate on the basis of nationality um, and, and religion, and, and that would sort of prevent sort of the outright banning of, for instance, Iranians, which which makes it you know hard, harder for them. I think if um, they have sort of a policy barring lengthy family visits, it's a little bit hard when people show up, um, you know, how do you outright bar them from entering without knowing exactly what they're there for? So the library is definitely in a very complicated position. Um, I, yeah, it's, it's you know, I, 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 it's not something that I really feel super comfortable weighing in on because it's just not an issue that I have spent a lot of time thinking about and I haven't done any sort of research and reporting. Um, but it does seem to me that like as a as a publicly funded or publicly supported institution, it, it must be very difficult for libraries to sort of know where the line is. For instance, on the issue you rose with hate groups, I mean, those are sometimes often citizens as well, and they 
pay taxes. And so, you know, what's the what's the legal basis for saying that they're not allowed to um, meet at the library? I think it, was, it, it seems to me like it would be quite dicey. Um, but again, I'm, I'm just no expert. So it's really hard for me to um, weigh in. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Sure. All right. Thank you very much for taking your time with us today. Of course. Thank you, Hong Yi and Yigana Torbati. If you would like to learn more about this subject, Ms. Torbati wrote an article for Reuters on the topic, which was published in November of 2018. If you're just tuning in, welcome to Show for Libraries. Today we're discussing libraries in times of crisis. For our second interview, Joel spoke to Scott Bonner, the director of the Ferguson Municipal Library in Missouri. They discussed the library response to major ongoing societal-level problems such as poverty by conceiving of them as a crisis in slow motion and the differences in response that his library has implemented regarding ongoing and acute crises. Hey, uh, my name is Scott Bonner. I am the director of the Ferguson Municipal Public Library in Ferguson, Missouri, which is a a wonderful community with a strong character, personality, in the north end of St. Louis uh, metro area in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, you talked about, you had mentioned the uh, the theme of the of the week being, and this is off the top of my head, so it ends up being a mess. I apologize. Oh, no problem. You mentioned the theme of the week being uh, libraries responding in crisis, and you know we did a bunch of that in 2014, and uh, you know people could look it up, or you can ask me about it. We can talk about it all you want. Yeah. But the other piece of that is that what libraries do every day is responding to crisis because poverty is a crisis in slow motion. Mm -hmm. and homelessness is a crisis in slow motion. And um, people struggling to understand their political system and make a good vote is a crisis in slow motion, right? So libraries have that, that threefold mission of lifelong learning and cultural literacy and bringing the community together, all those things touch the edge of deep and profound problems in society that are not easy to fix and will not easily go away. And one way to conceive of those, to remind us that they are actually urgent, even though they fade to the back of our memory, mm -hmm. is to think of them as a crisis in slow motion. Oh, thank you for that. that that's a very... Very provocative, uh, a very true statement. I, I, I myself, in in preparing for this, was kind of struggling with the, the idea it, with the with the episode theme. Uh, this idea of crisis and uh, how it can maybe seem kind of voyeuristic or histrionic at times. Uh, a lot of your your comments about kind of interfacing with the media throughout uh, the events and in the fall of 2014 kind of made me think of how uh, media's, media creates crises too. So I, I really appreciate that comment about uh, crises in slow motion. Another question that I had that I thought may have not been as touched on in some of the other things I was reading uh, with you was uh, your own use of social media during the events. I love that anecdote that you've told about the, the the super cynical cameraman oh, yeah. coming up to you and uh, saying it's been a bad week we need a change in the story and you're it right <laughs> I I think like I've I've been thinking about that I've been ruminating on that a lot since since uh, hearing you say that 
so was your was your engagement with social media during the events of summer fall uh 2014 kind of a way of telling your own story in kind of uh uh, just that that cynical comment is like so this person was trying basically leveraging the library for a story and wanted you to be the good news story the the media leveraged the library because they needed a good news story and it just so happened that that's the story that we need to get out so that other organizations would spot that we were there to help and come join us and so that the people of Ferguson would spot that we're there to help and doing good stuff and would come and get the help right you cannot control what the media does with you or your story but in this case in our case it was actually very advantageous because our needs dovetailed with the media's needs. Okay. That doesn't make it any any little bit less cynical. It just makes us lucky. And, you know, in times of acute crisis, like what we were going through in 2014, we end up doing the same thing, only louder and faster, right? So mm-hmm. public education was exactly what needed to happen whenever everyone was stepping back and reeling at what had happened in Ferguson and trying to understand what had gone on, what it really meant, what needed to change, what to understand, that became a, a function of uh, uh, ongoing education and a function of cultural literacy, understanding each other. Um, we just did what libraries do, only did it louder, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, invited the free world to come help us out because we had that moment of uh, media attention and other people caught uh, we caught the eye of other people that had more resources, and we grabbed that opportunity to bring in people to help us out. Um, but that's what we do every day, too. We put together programs. We partner with organizations that have more expertise than us. We put together, uh, we find places in the community to work out of, or we bring people into the library to work with us. But we're always partnering with someone else, putting something together to address a specific need, and uh, kind of chasing down our opportunities and trying to turn that into actual gain for the community. Mm-hmm. We do that every day, all day. And in a time of crisis, we just, like I said, do that faster and louder. A crisis can really bring out your passion and really drive you and can become just a kind of overwhelming thing that exhausts and excites and fears and everything else. And that can be quite something. The day-to-day work when it's not a crisis ends up not having that same kind of emotional valence. But whether you have it or not, the core skills are the same. It's all about the mission. It's all about what programs you're going to do, what services you're going to offer, who you're going to help. It's all about doing the same job in the same way. It's just a matter of you know, kind of scale and intensity. Um, and I would say that uh, in the end, we have our mission. Our mission happens to be phenomenally well-suited for dealing with certain kinds of crises. Any crisis where people doubt themselves, where they worry about their community, where they worry about the future of their community, um, the library is very well-equipped for jumping in there fearlessly as it can wrestling with the thing with the problems directly really there's there's probably a role to play for the library in almost any kind of crisis but the more that it's really about understanding each other and 
trying to plan for the future and understanding why things happened, then that's where the library ought to be. That's true every day, right? So we're struggling with um, people getting jobs every day, and that's partly uh, a part of uh, the, that's partly because the community is struggling with what does it mean to be in this community. Um, what do we accept and what do we not accept? Who is pariah and who gets no help? And so sometimes the library is out there helping the people that won't get help anywhere else. Um, that's our way of helping through this crisis. Thanks, Scott. And uh, as I said, really feel privileged to be able to talk to you about those events and many other things. That's really flattering. You know, I'm just a regular librarian. You got 15 librarians in your town, wherever you are in the Cutting University or wherever, that are also doing the same kind of stuff that we are. And uh, you know, you say you're working on your degree now. When you're done with your degree, you'll do the same kind of stuff too. Thank you, Scott Bonner and Joel. Next, we have shouts Kendra Cowley interviewing the curator of the Louise Michelle Library Project, Rob Jackson. The Louise Michelle Library is a monthly pop-up library project in Amiskwichiwaskaigan. The library is designed to be an autonomous, intellectual, and creative space dedicated to nourishing collective thought and action. Hi, my name is Rob Jackson, and I'm a curator with the Louise Michel Library Project in Edmonton, Alberta, Treaty 6 territory. So can you tell us more about the project? The Louise Michel Library Project is a pop-up library in Edmonton. It's an autonomous library space where folks can come uh, meet once a month and check books out from uh, a collection of about 700 texts. Cool. And what does the project aim to do? The project aims to do something like very, very simple, which is um, share the joy of reading and critical thinking together in spaces that are explicitly anti-capitalist and explicitly against the state. Great. Uh, what themes will the library explore over the next five months? Um, one of the things, as we're trying to sort of build a community of readers through the library, we want to index uh, and roll out our catalog to sort of major events that are happening in Edmonton, in Canada, and sort of internationally. Um, and so March, we're going to have a celebration of the International Women's Strike. So at the end of March, we're going to be showing the film Born in Flames, which is really exciting. Um, and we're going to be celebrating the thought of, of revolutionaries, of Marxist feminists, of trans and cis women, of women of color, and, and gender brilliant folks um, who want to animate the political body to shut down capitalist and patriarchal modes of gendered exploitation. What other kinds of themes can we expect for future pop-up libraries? Uh, April is going to be National Poetry Month, and um, Nation states are terrible, so we're going to have an event, uh, poetry reading, and our catalog is going to be Poetry Against the Nation. And then in May, uh, we're going to celebrate the many, many communist horizons and anti-capitalist horizons um, that get us to mar march in the street on May Day. So what inspires this project? Um, this project is in inspired uh, by work that I've been doing with a research collective in Edmonton, which is a grassroots research collective called Writing Revolution in Place. And it brings together folks, and mainly grad students from the University of Alberta, um, and 
and researchers from the community who are interested in asking really difficult and complex questions about what it means to live in this city, what it means to be members of a community, the limits to what community means, and what limits are placed um, on who is supposed to be thinking and doing what sorts of activities. And the library project is inspired by that to put books into circulation that because of their price, because of their um, language, because of the spaces where they sort of are held, are inaccessible. Um, and so I have in my basement a lot of these books and I just want to put them out into the world so that people can make their own meaning of them and people can get together and share them with their friends and their families and their lovers to talk about whatever they need to talk about. How does the theme of this episode, Libraries in Times of Crisis, resonate with the library and its desires? Um, the name of the project is the Louise Michel Library Project, and Louise Michel was a revolutionary feminist, archivist, librarian, and, and teacher in the Paris Commune back in the 1870s. And the Paris Commune was a response to a crisis of political imagination where poor kept getting poorer and the rich kept getting richer and the Paris Commune was an embodied response. They took over Paris for 70 days. It was an embodied response to the ongoing crisis that shaped Paris in the 1870s. And this crisis still shapes our world today. Um, the crisis of capitalism, the crisis of white supremacy, the crisis of colonialism and the crises of social reproduction under capitalism. Um, and so we need, well, we already have ways of being together that imagine different futures um, that are not based on these sort of foundational crises. And the more we can get together and talk about that, the more we can fight the, like, the lie that we're told that we have a crisis of the imagination. Um, and so the, the library project wants to pop up and provoke exciting imaginations about what can be done when we get together um, and the joy of reading. Um, we're often told that literacy is boring, it's work, but reading is wonderful and we need to fight against the poverty of imagination. That is a crisis in our schools and a crisis in our um, electoral systems and a crisis in our universities. So how can people connect with the library? Uh, people can visit us uh, at our WordPress site, which is Louise Michel Library Project. Uh, com. People can come out to the aviary sometime at the end of March. You can keep um, keep your eyes peeled to the website for that. Um, and then sometime at the end of April, you can come out to the Empress, and we're going to have a, a poetry reading and the pop up library there. And um, you can find our contact information up there on our website. Awesome. Thanks, Rob, for sharing this amazing project with us. Thanks so much to Kendra for that piece. All of these stories today made me very hopeful about the work that we can do in our libraries. And that's why, if you're just tuning in, you should check out our podcast, which will be linked to on our Facebook page, which you can find at Shout for Libraries, and our Twitter account, Shout the Number Four Libraries. If you like those stories today, we are also going to try to put the extended cuts of the interviews on our Facebook page if you'd like to hear more. That's it for today's show. Join us again next month when we'll be looking at this topic again with a more local context. 
We'd also like to say a special thanks to Scott Bonner, Yigana Torbati, and Rob Jackson for taking the time to chat with us. And don't forget to check, check it out! out.